This is the Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. We cut through the noise and discuss practical tips and challenges facing new attorneys in Texas and the United States. In this episode, I am your host, Lewis Williams, podcasting from beautiful Corpus Christi, Texas. Today, I'll be, I will be talking with Amanda Torres about demand letters. Amanda is a partner at Branscombe PC and a former judge here in Nueces County, Texas. Welcome, Amanda. Well. Welcome. Thank you for coming to my office. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, your practice. Right, sure. So um, you said it. I'm a partner here at Branscombe PC, and I was a, I'm was a former judge. I served as a justice of the peace in Nueces County for Precinct 1, Place 1. And I've also served as a county court at law judge in Nueces County. Um, <clears throat> my practice at the moment focuses on probate litigation um, and I also just do general civil litigation as well. And so as part of that litigation practice, I'm sure you encountered default judgments. Oh, definitely. When I was a JP, I think we, I've done hundreds of default judgment hearings. And um, also as a county court judge, that court heard the JP court appeals. Um, so we heard a lot of default judgments there. And then also you can take defaults, of course, as you know, in, in any type of case. Okay, and I'm sure a lot of young uh, litigators out there are faced with this issue where um, they need to take a default judgment, and so that's kind of the purpose of this episode today is to kind of talk through that process and how um, one would go and take a default judgment. So uh, we'll start with what is a default judgment? Well, a default judgment is supposed to be a simple way for a plaintiff to get a judgment as soon as possible when a defendant does not file an answer. So after the lawsuit's been filed, um, there's a time period for the defendant to answer, and if he doesn't answer, then at that point a default judgment can be taken? That's right. In general terms. Um, There's also something called a post-answer default judgment, um, but we don't see those as often. Right, and I think we're going to focus today's episode on more of the no-answer default when the defendant has been served. We'll talk about that and then talk about what happens and how um, a litigator can go to the court to get that default judgment. Um, you, you talked about your experience uh, in the beginning with um, no-answer defaults as both a practitioner and on the bench. Um, do you have a number of how many default judgments you may have seen or heard or taken in your in your practice? Um, I don't have a specific number. I don't recall. I just know that as a JP, I, frequ- I frequently heard default judgments down there. Um, as you know, the jurisdictional limit in JP court is ten thousand dollars. So you get a, we would get a lot of credit card companies who had sold their debt um, to third parties, and then those third parties would bring default judgments against uh, defendants. And then, of course, they come up in just general civil lawsuits. And then, so I would say hundreds. I've seen hundreds of them from the bench. And then as a practitioner here at Branscombe in private practice, I've also done handle numerous default judgments as well. I think you did one this morning, you said. I just did (laughs) one this morning, so this is a perfect topic for me. All right. So um, what's the, I guess, the the purpose of a default judgment, and what what does it do? Well, it's it's supposed to be, like you said, a quick mechanism or a quick procedure by which a plaintiff 
can go about obtaining a judgment without having a traditional full trial, without having to go to bench trial or jury trial. Okay, and so what, um, you know, I, I guess the, obviously the, the defendant or the, the person who the judge, d- default judgment is going to be taken against has to have notice of the lawsuit. Um, and so what, what, what is that kind of process with as far as getting a citation um, and then making sure that the defendant knows that this, this um, lawsuit is out there? Right. So the point, it's all the plaintiff's burden. It's all the plaintiff's job to get this done right. So default judgments are very handy. They can be a very quick way to get your verdict, a cheap way for your plaintiff to recover debt or whatever uh, type of, you know, disputes and controversy, but it doesn't mean anything if it's not done correctly, and default judgments have very strict requirements. Once the plaintiff files their petition, they have to get um, service of process done. As you know, in Texas, citation a citation is the way in which uh, the court commands a person or a defendant to appear before them. Um, this citation has to have very strict requirements, <clears throat> which, um, you know, styled in the, the state of Texas, uh, name of the plaintiff, name of the defendant, addresses, cause number must be correct. You know, you can't have a cause number with the wrong number somehow transposed or a name that's misspelled. You know, you really want to make sure you get everything done correctly to the T um, so that you don't have a problem down the road. The... Um, once the citation is uh, produced, it gets attached to your petition, and that gets served on the defendant. Um, service is the way in which the defendant receives notice. So he has to receive notice either through process server, um, constable, sheriff, or the clerk of the court. Um, and once the defendant receives that notice, then um, the court has acquired jurisdiction or you know, power over that case. The defendant becomes aware that there is a problem, and I, and I don't want to. We don't need to get into all of the types of different service. Typically, a lot of times, it's someone hands you, just like you see on TV, they've been served with a petition. Uh, but what are some kind of service issues that maybe you've seen um, in your practice, and 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 people can learn from? Well, um, so like I said, you. Your service is done either through sheriff, constable, clerk of court, or someone authorized by the court, and that typically is process servers. Um, some problems are sometimes the defendants will not, you know, accept service, won't answer the door, hide from you, and you have to get um, a motion for substitute service filed. Your motion for substitute service needs to detail the attempts that you tried to make to locate and serve the defendant. Some courts will require numerous um, attempts. Um, and so that's why it's really important to check your local rules on what they want to see in those motions for substitute service. Um, once you get an order signed, the order should say who the court is authorizing to serve. So, for example, if it says the court is authorizing you know, another, per- uh, another person, like a process server, to serve it, you can't then have the constable go serve it. It has to be by the person authorized by the court. And if it's, um, if it's not, then you need to go back and get it redone because you don't want to lose your default judgment on a, some kind of attack down the road. Right, and then that's important because you're taking a judgment against somebody. Typically, the judges will make sure everything is done right and according to the law and the rules. Yes. Another issue with service is sometimes 
you know, you filed your petition, the plaintiff, let's say we're talking debt collection, let's say you filed your breach of contract case, and then you want to add a new a new claim, like you want to add quantum merit um, to that, or you want to increase the amount, let's say you learned of a new unpaid invoice, or your client said, oh, by the way, I forgot this invoice, I want to, can we tack it into the amount owed? Um, you will need to um, reserve that petition. You don't get it, need to get a new citation made, but you do need to get that reserved. Okay. So anytime you add new claims or increase the amount owed, you've got to get that reserved. Okay, so once we, you know, we, we've checked the citation, we make sure everything's right there, the style, the names, and then we have a process server or someone authorized to actually serve the petition, um, then that process server or whoever has a return of service. And so wh- why is that important? The return of service is uh, very important. In a default judgment, um, your citation, your, the method of service, and the return of service are probably the most important things. Because remember, you're going to the court and saying, the defendant has not answered or not appeared, and so you should just give me judgment based on my pleadings here and the written instrument attached to it if you did that. So you're basically telling the court that this person is not interested, basically, in litigating this case. So you want to make sure that you've taken every step to give that defendant notice. Actual notice is not good enough. You can't say, oh, well, I ran into mid H-E-B and he told me he knew about it. That doesn't matter. If the return of service (laughs) isn't on file... You cannot get your default judgment. The return of service has to be on file 10 days. And that does not include the day of filing or the day of judgment, so it's 10 days. And then um, it also has very strict requirements of what's required to be on there. Usually it can be attached to... Um, can be attached to the order if you got a motion for substitute service you should list everything that you served you know i served the the process server or the constable whatever whoever it was that did your service should list there like i served the petition the order of substitute service the exhibits you know whatever you've served it should be listed so that there's no dispute that the defendant knew what was going on and I'd recommend that, you know, at each stage of this process, the lawyer, even though he may not be doing the actual service, he should check the citation and the service and the return of service to make sure it's all on file because at the end of the day, the judge is going to look to that lawyer to make sure that the default judgment was done properly. Right. So, you know, a lot of times lawyers like to use process servers to get their these, these cases served. Um, maybe they think the local constable or sheriff maybe they think it's slow or maybe it's out of county and they think they'll just have better luck with the private process server no matter who you use whether it's a sheriff a constable or a process server if somebody else is making drafting this affidavit of service or the uh, return of service you are the returning responsible any defects they make you're going to be stuck with so either draft it yourself and give it to them so you know it's done correctly or strictly review what they give you to make sure it complies with the rules so that you're not stuck at your default hearing day realizing that there's a defect that's going to make your default judgment um, open to attack later. Right, and which eventually costs your client more money if you have to go in reverse and all that stuff. Exactly. So if you have this served by a private process server, um, it will need to be verified or signed under penalty of perjury. 
So that's something you need to make sure that is done. And the person who was authorized to serve it has to be the person who signed it as served. So like I said, if you're if the court authorizes a constable to serve it, you can't have a private process server serve it later. Um, so just make sure that, you know, everything matches and follows the rules. Okay, I think so it's rule one oh seven. Okay. <clears throat> and so once we've got all that, we've got the, the citation is issued, the, the, it's everything served to the defendant, and the return of services on file for the, for the 10 days, what, what do I do now if I want to get that default judgment? What's my next step? Well, you're going to have a hearing, and a no-answer default judgment, you do not need to give the defendant notice. Um, so he already had notice, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's basically had notice, and he's not made any effort or company is whoever it is has not made any effort so you'll have you request a hearing um you will have the hearing um when you are preparing your petition it's important at the beginning of your case when you write your petition to make sure that it's clear what your causes of actions are um how much money you're claiming is owed or you know if it's a personal injury case what the damages are um, and then you need to also attach appropriate evidence. So, um, you know, in a no answer default hearing for there are different kind of damages, liquidated damages versus unliquidated damages. Liquidated damages are something that you can easily determine from a written instrument or something that's set out in your pleading. So, so some kind of invoices yeah, or things so like that. Yeah, so attach your invoices, attach, you know, whatever to your contract, whatever it is, your promissory note, whatever it is that you claim is the basis for your, you know, the money that's owed to you, attach that to your petition so that that is there. Um, if you don't have it, then you will need to probably have a hearing because there's no way the court's going to know how much you're claiming is owed or what the supporting evidence is for it. Uh, for unliquidated damages, you will want to attach an affidavit by somebody with personal knowledge of those damages. So um, unliquidated damages are something that you cannot determine easily from writing. So, you know, it could be um, repairs, uh, attorney's fees, something like that where you're going to have to, uh, you know, provo- prove evidence of, of how much, you know, you are owed. Okay, and once once you, um, uh, you know, have all this together and, and you, you ask for the default judgment, what other kind of documents do you need to attach to um, your motion for the default? You're going to need your service member's affidavit. Um, What is that? It's a document you have to go and verify as the attorney you you have to sign that you researched whether or not this defendant was was or is is in the military. So if you can't determine that, there's an option that says I'm unable to determine whether this person is in, you know, in the military. Um, if you are unable to do to determine that, the, you may want to watch out that the court may require you to post a bond um, in the event that person was actually overseas and unable to. Because there are separate laws that deal with active military yes, and taking yes. judgments against them. Um, okay. The other thing you'll want to attach. Um, is a certificate of last known address, you know, where you believed that defendant was last uh, residing at or last located. Um, And then, and um, the other thing that I think is really important in your petition, it helps you at your default judgment hearing, 
I like to create a chart of damages, whether they're liquidated or unliquidated, and have it set out um, within the petition, a chart of how much I'm claiming is owed, what's unliquidated, what's liquidated, um, and you know, whatever. If, for example, my contract provides for a higher interest rate, I'd like to calculate that all out within the petition so that it just becomes easier at the time of the default hearing um, to prove up. If you don't have, I guess what's why that's important is because at the hearing, if it's unliquidated damages, you have to put testimony, you have to put something on evidence, right? You can do testimony or you can submit your affidavits. Um, for liquid, liquidated damages, your affidavits are good enough and your um, attached uh, written instrument is good enough. So it just helps to get everything ready at the outset when you're drafting your petition. Put as much as you can there to support, especially if you think you've got a deadbeat def defendant who's not going to show up anyway, but you want to, you know, make sure you try to collect. I would put that all in there. Okay. Now let's talk about the actual um, hearing. Once you're there, um, what are some kind of tips or, or things that, and, and I recognize that different courts and different judges do a lot of different things. So um, right. what are some kind of tips, you know, once you're actually at the hearing and, and what to say and what, what to do? Well, I would definitely let the judge know you're there for a default judgment. Um, some courts will call for the defendant anyway, even though they may not have received a notice that the hearing was even happening, but they, they like to call, and so some of them will call in the hallway. Um, you could... You could even, on the defendant's answer day in the citation, you know, your citation will say you must respond by this day. You could even show up there on answer day to try to get your default judgment. I've never personally done that, but it's you can do it that way as long as you're, it has been on file for 10 days and the return of service has been on file. So um, at the hearing, you'll, of course, you know, tell the judge who you are, at the beginning, that's why I like my petition to be as clear as possible and my motion for default judgment to also be as clear as possible with the damages set out. Um, you know, walk the judge through the requirements so that he's not looking around or asking you questions. You know, let him know um, citation was filed on this day, um, return of service was filed on this day, this, has been on, this motion's been on file 10 days. Um, you know, here's the service member's affidavit that's on files, a certificate of last known address. Um, I'm going to prove up my damages now, my unliquidated damages, or do you, do you need anything else? You know, maybe he says, well, I have, he might have questions, the judge. Right, she sometimes. May, <laughs> she may, you know, still be confused and want to know something else. Um, you know, just always be attentive to them. Some of them will rush you through it because they think, oh, it's a default judgment, no big deal. And some of them will take a lot of time and strictly look at those requirements. Um so, again, it's also very important to know your local rules. I know Harris County has very specific default judgment rules, so you want to make sure you know where you're practicing and what rules you need to be following and, and looking out for. Um, um, at the hearing, the other important thing is, of course, to make sure that um, if you had some kind of alternate service done that you show, you can tell the judge, you know, or is this alternate service was done and here, here, here's how it complies and everything is we're good to go. Put that all on the record so that later in the event somebody tries to attack your default judgment, it's all there and laid out. Wonderful. Um, now, 
What about, and I know everyone does this kind of different, but my thought is whenever I show up, I like to have an actual judgment ready for the judge to sign. Now, some counties require you to e-file it, some don't. So what are your thoughts on actually having the, the judgment ready to go to hand to the judge at the actual hearing? I like to file mine ahead of time if possible, unless for some reason I can't. And because I like I like to do that in case there's an, you know, sometimes the, there's an error on the judgment either whether it's a typo on my end or the judge, you know, writes the wrong thing. That way his court can print it out again for them with the correction. And, you know, they can say, oh, I don't want to use this one. It has too many markups. So they can just print another one and and use it. But I like to file them personally so I know that they're there. Um, That's just my personal preference. Um, I would always recommend knowing how much you want to receive um you know if you're going to put some judges don't like you to write in attorney's fees and they think it's very offensive like how could who are you to tell me exactly how much i should pay you you Mm -hmm. know they want to write it in themselves so if i'm going to file it usually i will leave it blank and i'll just go tell them at the hearing depending on what the affidavit says or testimony and they can write it in themselves or i'll put it in it just depends on the court i'm in actually so uh, you know, just you just need to know your judges and what they prefer. Right. That, that's probably a big a big <laughs> part of any of this is different judges prefer different things. Um, are there any kind of uh, other kind of pitfalls or concerns that um, you've seen um, either as a practitioner or on the bench that we want to you know let our young listeners know and and young attorneys know that you know so they can watch out for. Um, I think at the outset, when you're drafting your petition, make sure that it's clear what your causes of action are and how much you are claiming you're owed. Again, in my perspective, I've seen these mostly in debt collection or civil disputes, you know, breach of contract type cases. You can do them with, like, personal injury cases. Uh, I don't – I haven't seen those as much, but you can. Um, Remember that any time the defendant answers, you can no longer get your default judgment. That's important. So (laughs) it's important that before you have your hearing, you check with the court to make sure that their docket does not reflect that the defendant has filed an answer. If the defendant has filed an answer any time up to the day of your hearing, you will not get your default judgment. Is that even if it's after their answer deadline? Even if it's after the answer deadline. Okay. And almost anything can count as an answer. Pretty much. Um, so, I mean, it could be something as simple as a they got their citation and wrote on it, <laughs> um, mail this to my new address at, you know, whatever street. That could probably pass as a default judgment, as an answer. So you don't want to risk it. Just call and ask if there is an answer on file so you don't waste your, your time or your client's money. Now, um, I want to just talk briefly about kind of attacking defaults and, and overturning them. It's been my experience experience that it's pretty relatively easy to overturn a default judgment, if, especially if there hadn't been service. And a lot of times the plaintiff's attorney thinks service was done, but it was done improperly, and so a lot of times these get overturned. What are kind of some, some thoughts and that you have about if you've ever been on the side where you had to attack a default judgment or try to get one overturned? Yeah, so... I think it's easier to get a default judgment overturned if you're within your 30 days um, because you can bring extrinsic evidence. You know, I was in the hospital 
I couldn't come to the hearing. I couldn't file my answer. Right. Or, you know, the Hurricane Harvey came through and I, <laughs> you know, wasn't receiving any mail. I mean, you can do, you can say and, you know, put on all this evidence to show why you were unable to answer or appear. And you mean while the court has the plenary power within the 30 days right. of the judgment? Right, and the court is more than likely going to say, okay, and give you a new chance. Or, like you said, it could be something you could show that service was incorrectly done or... You know, you could file an affidavit that, you know, was your brother that got it, not you. I mean, there's all sorts of things you could do. Um, Within that 30 days, I think it's easiest to get your default judgment overturned. But outside the 30 days, you go into your restricted appeal as your only way to get this overturned. And at that point, you are limited to the uh, file and the evidence that was submitted in the record. So at that point, you know, there has to be some error that's clear, like, you know, we served Louisa Williams and not right. <laughs> Louis Williams, or, you know, we served, um, we served somebody by a, a constable and not the private process server is ordered. So, you know, it has to be something within the record that'll support that to be overturned. So right. if you are, if you did receive a default judgment um, and your client has contacted you, I would immediately, you know, do something check your timelines to see where you're at because you want to get that overturned right and as, as time goes on it gets a lot it harder, gets so. harder you don't want to you don't want to miss that deadline uh, and I think you know one thing too for for those um, for those listeners that are you know maybe going to go take their first default and are extremely nervous um, I remember um, <clears throat> the first one I did and I think something that would have helped me uh, if I would have known it then is that Usually, the judge you're going in front of has done this hundreds of times. And so a lot of times, they will help you walk you through it if you do get just too nervous and, and don't know what to do. The judges know what to do. And so um, that was really helpful my first couple times doing yeah, this. Yeah, and also let the judge know. I mean, as a former judge, I always appreciated it when somebody let me know, this is my first default judgment hearing. This is my first bench trial. This is my first whatever it was. I, you know, I don't, the judge won't think less of you or, you, you know, your client certainly shouldn't think less of you since they hired you to begin with. But um, if you, if you let the judge know, then, then they can also, like Lewis said, take a, take a leader, take a leadership role in that hearing and, and make sure that you've, you know, done something, everything you need to. And um, you always want to make sure that you've, uh, your default judgment is going to, com- will stand up. So make sure right. you check your return of service as soon as you get it. Before you, it should be filed with the court. So as soon as it's filed, whether somebody else files it or if you file it, make sure it's correct. So that if it's not correct, you can um, have it corrected. Right. If you if you find the error early enough, you can have it corrected in time to get the default judgment that you you want to get for your client. Yeah, and I think a default judgment motion that sets everything, all the requirements out citation was filed on this day you know return of service on this day 10 days have passed here's the service members affidavit on file if you make your motion like a little outline it's gonna if you don't it'll help you with your nerves on the day of the hearing because everything is listed right there. Right, you can just go through it with the judge yeah. and the judge will either know and but if you leave everything out and just say oh you know here's my default motion and it's been on file 10 days then you have to remember to go back and go right. through all those motions with the judge and so if it's your first time that can be a little more nerve-wracking right well wonderful i, I think um 
we've given a lot of good tips and and um, and helpful advice out there for for lawyers. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for your time and for the advice you've given us. I think this has been a great learning tool for those attorneys interested in learning more about default judgments or maybe taking their first default judgment. Um, you know, this is a good kind of guide to to guide them through that. Um, Thank you all for listening to Young Gunners from the Texas Young Lawyers Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out the TYLA website, tyla.org, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, If you have a topic you want to hear about, email us at tyla at texasbar.com or send us a tweet at at texyounglawyers using the hashtag Young Gunners. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks and keep up the good work out there.